Last week, I woke up to a chill in the air. I was on a wooden slat, a repurposed bit of siding now used as a shelf, to support my weight and the weight of all the others. We look alike, them and me. We're all pumpkins. I can tell this right away, even without eyes or ears. I can sense the world through that little cut-off stumpy bit on the top of my uneven head, the place where the vine that I called Mother used to be, full of nutrients and encouragement to keep growing, feeding all of us, each the logical resolution of a line that extended across the patch and into the ground, taking water from down there and giving it to us. I'm not sure that it was technically Mother. Maybe Mother was the field or a seed or the rain. But the vine aches where love used to be, and calling it Mother feels right. I'm all sloshy inside, with smooth, slippery seeds clinging to webby, wet flesh, and all of a sudden I can feel my skin turn a shade darker, more sienna than rust. I'm retaining a bunch of water, and people are staring at me. I can feel the weathered plank bend a little more under me, a dip from where I'm positioned, and then it rises back up to the smaller pumpkin on my left. Her name echoes through me. Oleana. She tells me this, or I feel it through my head stump. She's perfect, small but spherical. No odd ends sticking out, no warty growths that betray our goodness. No hollow spots from sitting outside for too long. I reach out, but I have no arms. No tendrils to wave hello. The eyes of others are no longer on me, but on her. And then she's gone. Lifted up, taken, so round, so perfect. She goes, I stay. She gets packed into the back of a Volvo. I can see her slender, gently twisting stump sticking out of the paper bag in the trunk. I register my own disappointment in not being picked. It matches the tone of grunts and groans from the cardboard box full of misshapen gourds at the end of the plank, with their green-yellow stripes and their bumps, lumps, and nodules. We're all left here together to sit a bit longer, maybe forever. We wait for someone to pick us, to want us, to put us on a table or stoop, to thrust a too-dull knife into our hides and cut out garish faces, to triangle eyes, a gash of a mouth turned up in a smile. Put a candle inside us. It hastens the rot, but it makes it all worth it. As soon as we're taken from the vine, we start dying anyway. We know this. But for a few weeks a year, we can be more than. We can live out our destinies on porches and doorways. And while berries and cheeses are nice, fresh honey, green beans, and corn do okay. It's the pumpkins and gourds like us who keep the farm stands afloat. We're their main reason for being... I suppose you could argue for the fresh slice of a tomato or the tender yield of a peach during the peak of the summer. But as soon as the air starts to cool and before the first leaf of the oak hits the unfrozen ground, it's an assembly of pumpkins that delights and entices. Now, friend, I may be trapped in the body of a seasonal vegetable, but I can tell you the amount of money one would make from putting farm stands on the right side of the road immeasurable. Not sure who told the farmers that people want pumpkins on their way into town. Literally no one wants that. What, I'm going to sit with a pumpkin in my artfully restored mid-century A-frame with its walls painted black, situated too near a floodplain, and just have a pumpkin sitting by the door? No. Farm stands are for souvenirs, ways to remember that you just spent too much money to sit in a different room for three days. It's on the way out. 
One craves pumpkins and pies and fresh batches of basil. One should be able to obtain all the things I can test without having to make a left-hand turn on a major highway, and then a left again to get back on your way. That's two left turns too many. And if I had my way, all roads would be circles, and you'd never make a left. The lengths I've gone to avoid a left turn, ask my family. But the right side of the road, farmers, that's where the money is. It's the easier side, trust me. Sometimes one has to follow the path of least resistance to get the reward. Nature does it all the time. It's okay to embrace the path more likely. Branch out and flow the way things ought to flow. When it's right, you just know it. Of course, nature, always having to teach us things, thrives when obstructed, finds clever ways to get around it, whatever it is. But thinking about that attempt, both the undeniable course of a river and its unavoidable spillovers and floodplains is what we're doing tonight, following the branches as they branch. Whatever path you were on, I'm glad that it brought you here to a place we call the Deep Night. friends, hello. I do hope your journey has been easy here. Tonight I'm Dale Seaver. It's 4 a.m. and the Gowanus is following its heart, moving always in great gelatinous heaves, past the metal scrapyard, past the abandoned casket manufacturers turned into condos, and out into the vast sea, or river, or some kind of channel. Eventually we probably end up drinking it, so in that way the Gowanus is flowing in all of us. Doesn't that feel good? I'm pleased you found yourself here tonight, inspired by the long-dead spindly tree limb that used to scrape against my window pane like a witch's finger. I'm offering you a meditation on branches. So many avenues to explore as we all try to move ahead. The season has already been a little unusual, prone to diversion and oversaturation. Maybe it's the season, maybe it's due to my condition lately, my inability to stay in one place for very long, to physically hold myself together, but there's been things that I've seen in my many forays into the murky corners of our time stream that, like the chill of the wind rushing through the London plains and Norway maples, seems to be seeping in around the cracked and worn seals of the windows of my being. I couldn't keep them out if I tried, and since we're all here together, you may feel the draft of my experiences, too. I warn you, these are no dreams, no figments of fancy or fragments of a mind now broken, but indeed my very essence has seen these things. Surely, as you can hear me now, these things are all things that I have felt, some recent, some a bit more distant. In whatever state I'm in now, I feel them all at once. Time collapsing in on itself, the way it feels when you open a box in a darkened attic lit only by a single bulb and you hold something that you hadn't seen for years, since you were a child. But there it is, 
Still that thing smelling the way it used to, worn in all the places it was worn years ago. A friend cleaning out her parents' house suggested that touching all these objects so well-known and loved from her youth was a form of time travel, and I agree. It's why dealing with them is so exhausting, so taxing. Time travel of this kind is not easy. It's not the path of least resistance at all. In fact, there may be no greater hindrance to our paths than loss. Whether sudden or gradual, it's a boulder shaken loose from a hilltop and smashing into a river, a giant foot set down before a column of ants. It demands attention and resources, diverting all of our tasks, sending us careening back and forth in time, interacting with people and objects and spaces from various parts of our life, some having been cordoned off for years like an ancient seed found embedded in a core sample newly exposed to the sun and air. They surprise us and spring back, however temporarily, to become a significant presence. Helpful, hopefully. Sometimes not. Sometimes they're just a second boulder in your river. But sometimes they ease the flow, get us back on track, make it so that the water, the energy, can move again. Even if it's less clear now, muddier, full of silt and tears. I was on a walk at some point someday, sometime, in a city not unlike this one, admiring a tree, tracing the uneven patterns of its bark and the subtle shades of red that were starting to creep in among its leaves. It was a particularly jaunty trunk, not terribly thick, but zigzagging up to the sky. And for the first time, I thought how similar trees looked to lightning. The way Lightning branches through the clouds, a rumble of thunder right behind a tree is lightning you can touch. The representation of energy finding the fastest, most efficient way between the sky and the ground. Now, I'm no stranger to going down fractal and spiral-shaped holes about fractals and spirals, universal forms that seem to be found throughout creation, impossible math folding in on itself. But branches are out there, too, and so many things. Invisible as currents in the wind or bluish and faint in the veins beneath our skin. Our hearts, our lungs, our capillaries, all tiny branching rivers inside of us, ensuring the efficient delivery of goods to their destinations. Making sure oxygen, blood, thoughts get where they need to be so that we can function. Millions of tributaries, all flowing in smaller and smaller streams so that we can enjoy life's pleasures, like sexual congress or a hearty breakfast. In my case, both things involve a slice of dry wheat toast, a handmade mug full of black coffee, and half an ear of corn on the cob. Or, if you're someone who enjoys the taste of wild nuts and dried moss, a bowl of grape nuts. You know, I recently bought my second box of grape nuts ever. That's how long they last. It's not an everyday food in my house. I purchased my first box in 2008 in a fit of nostalgia for the one my mother owned when I was a child. She also used it sparingly. The wheat germ got much more play. You know, it took me 15 years, but I finally finished my box of grape nuts. Nostalgia is a powerful drug because a few months later, I saw a box in the store and thought, oh, grape nuts. Amazing they still make these. And now I have my second box. It's not the kind of thing you buy if you don't have dental insurance. So if you see a box in a paramour's cabinet whilst rifling through their belongings after they've gone to sleep you will know that they likely have a job with great benefits, so it could be worth sticking around, at least 
Give it another day or so. Watch what they eat for breakfast. I'm Yul Gibbons. I've spent years learning about natural foods. Ever eat a pine tree? Many parts are edible. Natural ingredients are important to me. That's why post-grape nuts is part of my breakfast. This wholesome cereal is made from wheat and barley. These natural ingredients are baked into crunchy nuggets and fortified with vitamins. Its naturally sweet taste reminds me of wild hickory nuts. I call grape nuts my back-to-nature cereal. That 1970s commercial for grape nuts was part of a series featuring naturalist and author Yule Gibbons. The TV ad, as only TV ads could do back then, became a cultural moment, a touchstone, the subject of late-night chatter and sketch show parodies. The folks and man walking through the woods asking, have you ever eaten a pine tree, would both support a massive increase in the sales for Post Cereal and its grape nuts brand, while cementing health foods in the popular imagination as being boring, bland, and, well, like eating a tree. Now, leaving aside how fantastic these ads are, and friend, if you have a projector or high-definition television set, I highly recommend creating a YouTube playlist and settling in for a night of Yule Gibbons' grape nut ads. Thrill as he visits an old grist mill. Feel nervous for what's going to happen as he meets with the Zuni Indians. Each one is a gem. Yule Gibbons makes for a fascinating, if unlikely, celebrity spokesperson, and, rare for cereal, was an actual human, not an animated toucan or leprechaun. His authenticity is obvious from the minute you see him ambling into view on a hike or sitting on the dock of a small pond. We catch Yule doing what he does, enjoying the out-of-doors, about to sit down for a healthy breakfast. Usually he's wearing a Western-style shirt with a red bandana around his neck. His features call to mind an aging Jack Palance left out in the elements, like you forgot to bring him in for the night or he fell asleep in a ditch. Now, without judgment, I do believe Gibbons probably spent a night sleeping in something similar to a ditch, as it would fit into his remarkable life perfectly. Gibbons made his bones in 1962 and gained national attention for his book about his life spent foraging for wild foods. The book was Stalking the Wild Asparagus. It was by all accounts a sensation, vibrating to a frequency familiar to the back-to-earthers and hippies, as well as the Bucky Fuller addicts and backyard gardeners. He wrote several follow-ups, too, Stalking the Blue-Eyed Scallop, Stalking the Healthful Herbs, books I am certain I saw on the shelves of a home in Vermont where we would spend the summers picking blueberries and making applesauce from the trees out back. Gibbons was at the forefront of the foraging movement, and it's someone who is still looked to by some as an influencer of influencers. Foraging was something that came naturally to Gibbons, a way of existence born of equal parts curiosity and basic survival. A path he followed as it branched and broke off and double-backed numerous times over the course of his unusual eventful life. A chronicle of the jobs he held as he worked his way out of the drought-prone Red River County, Texas, through a life spent on the move from Washington, California, Hawaii, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania, is its own kind of map of survivability over time. From 15 on, he found employment wherever he could. He trapped animals, harvested wheat, panned for gold, mended fences, was an itinerant carpenter, an entertainer in a hobo encampment, a schoolteacher, a small craft repairman in the Navy. He became a beachcomber, enrolled as a freshman in college at age 36, joined the Communist Party, became a Quaker. But always, 
even after reintroducing the world to great nuts in the 1970s, he was a writer, building up pages from nothing, pulling up facts, beliefs, experiences, and stitching them together. Gibbons also suffered from an inherited genetic disorder, Marfan syndrome. This disorder affects the connective tissue in the body, that which supports and anchors your organs and all the other systems in your body. Often people with Marfan syndrome, among them theater enthusiast Abraham Lincoln and Olympic champion Michael Phelps, are long and lean with very, very extended legs and fingers and arms. Now, people can often live uh, lengthy lives with this condition, but should the aorta, the large blood vessel that carries blood from your heart to the rest of the body, be affected, well, it can be deadly. And so it was that this man, so large in life, so adept at foraging and forging connections from a lifetime of disparate, disjointed experiences, was felled by his own body, losing its ability to hold itself together. Arriving at the delta of so many pathways converging, Yule Gibbons died of complications from Marfan syndrome, the connective tissue in his heart giving way, unable to stem the flow within. What a life he led and left us with. What a path he was on, so many branches like a lightning storm, like a forest of trees. And like lightning, most of us will only recall a single moment of his, suggesting we enjoy a handful of pine cones. But there was so much more, part of a complex system of energy and its exchange, one familiar to us all. I remember waking up on the bus. I was trying to sleep, even with the noise and the smells of other kids and the diesel fumes and the heat, somehow finding a way to lean my forehead against the back of those dark green seats of the bus, the fabric with the tiny bumps like skin. I hope it wasn't skin. Let's assume some kind of vinyl. If you rested your head on the window, a pothole, the Pennsylvania State flower, would surely rattle you awake. These school field trips were rare and they were long. They were probably rare because they were so long and unbearably warm. Trying in vain to open the windows one side and the other, try not to snap your fingers in the latch. Our local bus operator was named Krapf, and that word was written on the outside and it spoke to how we felt about them on the inside. The yellow buses weren't designed for long journeys, really. Morning pickups, fine, get you from your home to the school, okay. But into the city, ill-advised. There was always traffic near Philadelphia, stoppages at all the same spots. Years later, I'd listen to KYW News Radio 1060 and memorize all the places where it would slow down, the Conchahawken Curve, King of Prussia, and the Blue Route once it opened. One field trip, we missed the entire opening act of Phantom of the Opera and just had to guess what was going on when we got there and some fellow with a mask was singing in a boat. This was a field trip to Center City that we were on, my face covered in more freckles, my hair fuller and bouncier, and my wireframe glasses a brilliant metallic red. There's a better than 50% chance I was wearing corduroy even in the summer. Those years, I didn't have many friends, so I imagine I was sitting alone or next to someone who also didn't have many friends, or someone who wished they were sitting somewhere else. There were only a few places to go on field trips back then, only a handful, mostly battlefields and historic homesteads that the school district would bother with sending buses full of kids into the city for. 
I was glad we weren't going to the Please Touch Museum. It bothered me then and it bothers me now that there's a place called that. I almost wouldn't mind if it were named literally anything else. Your whole life, parents and teachers are like, don't let anyone touch you. And then your school wants you to go to a place called the Please Touch Museum. Gross. No. Besides, what's the big deal about touching stuff? I never touched anything in a museum. Thought didn't even cross my mind. If I wanted to touch something at that age, I'd go with my mother to the mall and crawl under a coat rack and bury my face in the coats until it was time to go. Or... I'd visit my friend Bugger's house where we'd rub Nivea lotion on He-Man dolls to make them slide faster down the hallway. It sounds homoerotic now, and I assure you, it was then too. I was also glad we weren't headed to Valley Forge or worse, the Betsy Ross house. Nothing against sewing, a masterful art. But in those days, if I remember correctly, there was very little sewing going on. I'm not sure there were reenactors like they have now, no young woman making questionable life choices dressed in an apron and bonnet talking about Betsy Ross using I statements as if she thinks we believe she's actually Betsy Ross, or more alarming, she thinks she's Betsy Ross. When we went there, it was just a mannequin hunched over a needle and thread with fabric stars scattered about in a basket of yarn. It's a toy that, if we're being honest, should probably be a plaque. A simple old-timey sign made of bronze. Affixed to the siding outside the door, you'd walk by and say, Nice place. Who lived there? Betsy Ross? Great. What's next? Maybe a pretzel or a pork sandwich at Reading Terminal. Now, if it were me designing these things, coming up with great attractions of history, I'd need them to raise the stakes, show the school kids more drama. Fine to have a reenactor, but show me the stress. You're telling me this woman calmly sewed stars onto stripes after receiving the order on deadline for a flag to represent the entire nation? During wartime, I've seen Project Runway. I know how this works. And I'm pretty sure the bonnet would be tossed on the floor. There'd be two or three flags made out of tulle and torn muslin draped over the chairs and a harried young woman at the end of her rope taking a swig from a crock of moonshine frantically running around and tearfully breaking down in front of a Macy's accessory wall. I'd pay to see that. In person or on Twitch? We're not even sure of the history anyway, so why not let it breathe? Give it some life. Was Betsy unflappable, so confident in her skills, or did she have doubts? Did she wonder whether she could do it, this task she was charged with? Although, as we know, any time you poke history, prod it just a little, you find out that if anyone should have had imposter syndrome, it's these folks whose personal branches, it turns out, diverge from the truth years ago. My research suggests it's not even clear that young Betsy Ross, who was a real person, had anything to do with flag-making at all. She may have lived at the address, been known to a founding father, but it seems likely that she has the suffrage movement to thank for her place in history. They fashioned her a symbol of women's worth during their efforts to get equal rights, making the point that if a woman can literally create the symbol of this nation, why can't women choose who leads them? I don't blame them. It makes a heck of a story. But what of Betsy's path, her personal branches? Sometimes the path of least resistance meets the path of most convenience, and things get rerouted. We only know the end, unable to see its beginnings. Or maybe it's the middle bit we should be really concerned with. 
Now, whether Betsy Ross made a flag or the flag, I will tell you something for certain. If it were me, living back then, with my tricorned hat in colonial times, and it was me who came up with adding stars to the stripes, you better believe I'd run the biggest flag shop in Pennsylvania. I'd use that pattern on everything, from my smart little jacket down to my long pantaloons. It'd be all stripes and all stars, and there'd be no one to stop me. Billy Penn coming to dinner? Enjoy my stars and stripes tablecloths, curtain and upholstery. Everyone in town would know me as I walked, strutting down South Street, dripping in the stuff. Every single person in Philly would know I was ye old Dale Seaver, purveyor and inventor of the greatest fabric on earth. That's what I want in a home tour, okay? More drama, more oomph. History? How about pizzastery, okay? On the same dull end of the excitement spectrum when it comes to Philadelphia attractions, I offer you the 1980s era Liberty Bell. Now, there's no way around this one. It's a broken bell. And no one's really sure it's even the bell or what the bell even was to begin with. They recast this thing like three times, and yet in every incarnation, it's broken. If I were a smithy, hitting hammer to metal, pouring bronze into sand, and it was like my whole job to, you know, make this thing, I would fix it. <laughs> right? I wouldn't say, you know that big bell, the broken one? I made that. You'd never work again. It never rang, not in 1776, if that's what you're thinking. There was some kind of, I don't know, steeple where it was hanging, and then it wasn't. It crumbled, then there was a train. Ah, it doesn't matter. It's all hokum. No matter how poetic you try to be, it's a broken bell. No, I'm not down on freedom. I'm not even down on bells when they work. I think this thing is a good symbol. Freedom is a work in progress or something flawed, but still, I don't know. I don't know. When we were kids, it wasn't in a special mall with air conditioning like it is now. It was just in a shack, a colonial lean-to. You'd go to a room and look at this busted-up bell and think, yes, again, could have been a plaque. Now, I gather there's a whole build-up before you see it if you go today with holograms and kiosks and timelines, all of which I am in favor of. I say, keep going. Give me a VR helmet and let me soar next to Georgie Washington as we sail into Trenton. Let me strike the virtual bell, repaired and unbroken, and let it ring throughout the land, while also accepting that this is stolen land and we shouldn't be on it anyway. One highlight of going now is that while putting your keys and wallet into a little plastic basket to go through the metal detectors, you get to hear multiple versions of Philadelphia guys asking the security guard, what we's going to do is break it? <laughs> oh, oh, smart. There is one place in Philly that I loved going to as a kid, and that's where we were headed on this late spring day in third or fourth grade, the Franklin Institute. Yes, named for Ben Franklin. You can't avoid Ben Franklin in Philadelphia. Yous can try, but you'll fail. He's literally everywhere. We have a lot of Ben Franklin impersonators making it so. Any bald guy with a gut and spectacles can play Ben Franklin, and they do. They show up at book fairs and car lots and supermarket ads and at Patti LaBelle concerts. I get it. For sure, out of all the founding fathers, he really seems like the most fun and definitely the one who was down to clown, which, of course, has endeared him to generations of Philadelphians who, let's face it, feel the same way. The Institute is named after him because... Electricity, I guess. 
It's not a museum devoted to syphilis, though Philly has one of those too. The Franklin Institute is a science museum mostly for kids, although I'm sure some adult nerds are drawn to the place as well. It's probably popular among the black Reebok set, the ones still buying Lego sets for themselves. The main thing to see at the Franklin Institute, other than one of those balls where you put your hands on it and your hair stands up, because again, electricity, the main thing to see, and the whole point of going there, was to walk through the enormous, anatomically correct human heart. With all of its veins and valves, its branching delivery systems rendered in fiberglass and resin. As I remember it, it almost reached the ceiling of the place. It was red, which is not entirely anatomically correct, as I understand it, but whatever, who cares? Who knows how the body really works or looks anyway? My cosmetic Reiki master, Darlish, who instead of moving my energy around with his hands hovering above me, uses free samples from Sephora to show how energy would look when drawn on my face with heavy foundation and ample contouring. Darlish talks a lot about how science is the language of the people running the simulation so that we never really find out what our true selves are. Darlish charges me a lot, and I'm not sure it's actually worth it. He's got some very curious ideas. Inside the giant heart were tunnels just big enough for kids to crouch and walk through. The idea was that you could move the way blood and platelets move around the heart, circulating freely, as if we were all starring in our own version of the 1980s Martin short film Inner Space. I love any movie where people have to fit inside of other people. Such a great premise. No matter what part, no matter for how long. Anyway, I was genuinely excited to get into that heart all day, all year. I had been waiting for this moment. I'd seen it on the commercials, and I wanted to go right to it. But first, we had to look at different kinds of rocks, or how the moon was formed, or how tectonic plates work, or something. And then there was more science to look at, a huge display with a fan showing us how wind works. Wind? I know how wind works. Get me in the heart, I was shouting in my head. I shot dagger eyes at Mrs. Hurley, even though she was like the one cool teacher, mostly because she was younger than some of our other teachers. You don't see as many old teachers now, but when I was a kid, they were there. Men and women brought up during the Great Depression. Some spent time in a schoolhouse with one room. They carried their books to school in leather straps, and an apple was like a rare gift. Now, all of my niece's daughter Pepsi's teachers are like 22 and just constantly emailing me about donating money or wanting us to join a Zoom call about imposing limits on screen time. The thing is, I wanted to get into the heart real bad, and after what felt like half the day, we finally got there. It was a full-on sprint to run into the entrance of the thing, the giant blood vessel ready to suck us all in like blood cells smashing into one another. I was crammed in there with all the other kids, so many of us, and if a kid slowed down, the whole system started to fall apart, arteries clogged, valves blocked, and all around us, a thunderous, low rumble, only discernible once we were on the inside, the heart had a beat. The thump, the thump, the thump, in surround sound, so loud you could feel it in your own chest. It's thumping away, full and true, not at all reflective of how seriously constricted some of these arteries had become, clogged with school children, a backup of Kid Lester all. We're shoved into these tubes going this way and that, more and more kids piling in, dropping in over one another, just a twisted snarl of Velcro sneakers and friendship beads and girl bodies that smell like strawberries. And being a curious child and an only child, not comfortable in group situations, I stop 
I smush my body against the plastic organ's walls. I let some kids go by. I try to give myself a moment to breathe. And as the last of the pack of kids rushes through, I'm alone for a minute, just me and the thumps, the thumps, the thumps. I pulled over, collected myself, and then I realized I was unsure how to get out. I was lost in a giant heart. I started to hyperventilate a little, thinking that I have to spend the rest of my life inside a giant fiberglass heart. I was having a panic attack. My heart was going th thump, 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 and the big heart was going th thump, th thump, th thump, and it was all too much for me, and I'm pretty sure I started to cry. I went up one ventricle, and it led nowhere. I went up another one and ended up back at the little resting place where I had stopped to begin with. I started to feel bad about saying such mean things about the Betsy Ross house. That place had one door in, and you went out the same door when you had to go out. The, the Liberty Bell didn't even have doors. I started to wish Ben Franklin never invented lightning or kites to begin with. After a very tense 30 seconds, which felt like 30 hours, I spotted a kid from my class running through the artificial organ at top speed. Teachers couldn't fit into this thing, so it was a real wild scene. I took note of this glorious sense of freedom, kids spinning out in every direction, so at odds with how trapped I felt. So I clambered up the tube stairs behind the kids, scrambling towards a rush of fresh air and the sounds of scream laughing and shouting and instructors trying to be heard above the din, telling them to settle down and line up. I got out. I was free. I rejoined the group. I braced myself for the long ride home where I'd try to sleep again, listening to my own heartbeat. Close your eyes and begin to breathe deeply and slowly. Settle into a comfortable chair in a quiet, private place. Slip off your shoes and loosen your clothing. And to let your energy flow without obstruction, Keep your legs uncrossed and your feet flat on the floor. As you begin to relax, close your eyes and take five deep breaths. As you breathe in now, consider what your lungs are doing. Not to the point where you forget how to breathe and then panic like you won't remember how to do it ever again, but like a nice gentle breath. Consider all the little branches in your lungs bringing in the good air and as you exhale, taking away all the bad stuff, the carbon dioxide you don't need. The body is full of helpful branches, all guiding you on your path. And maybe there will be obstacles. Well, there definitely will be, knowing my listeners. But there will be for everyone out there. There certainly were many for Yule Gibbons, and he became the spokesperson for Grape Nuts. They were there for whoever Betsy Ross really was, and whatever she actually did maybe didn't matter because her path got repurposed by others, guiding a whole other branching course of history. When I'm at home in my meditation studio, sometimes I'll grab a sheet of paper and dampen it with a wet brush. Not all over, I'll leave part of it dry. And then I'll dab some watercolor paint and push that into the wet part, watch as it blooms and swells. And if I get enough paint on there with enough water, I'll tilt the page, a gentle angle works best, and I'll just watch and see how the paint chooses to run, gathering in one spot and then down, in long drips or little spindles. The weight of what came before will push it in one direction or another. The same is true for us. And that's enough thoughts on branches for one week, even two weeks, 
I hope you find comfort and strangeness and things that overwhelm and things that delight on wherever your branches lead you. Remember, it's okay to double back, try a new path. If you end up in a dead end or a place that feels untrue, it's all right. Take a moment, pause, listen to your heartbeat, and then find a new way out. Friends, I feel warm, which must mean that it's time to go. So until next time, remember that although this night is ending, a bright new day is just ahead. Deep Night with Dale is independently produced, performed, and written by James Bewley. Podcast theme by Via Mardot. Season artwork by Victor Bizar Gomez. Photography this season by Emma Mead. New website design by Maria Belen of Bella Mona Designs. All of these artists are wonderful and worth looking up and following on social media or hiring for your next great thing. For everything Dale and Deep Night, true denizens of the deep should visit deepnightshow.com or tune into the show on Spotify, wherever fine podcasts can be found. Remember to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and follow Dale on Instagram at Dale Seaver. Thanks for paying a visit to the deep night. <laughs>